Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. What's good, everybody? Welcome back to another InsideCarolina.com podcast. Uh, with me, as always, for this episode of The 40 Club, the consigliere of Clayton, Tommy Ashley. Tommy, how are you? Doing well, Joey. How are you doing today? I'm all right. All right, big show today. Uh, we're brought to you by Johnny T-Shirt. Remember, subscribe, rate, and review us. But this episode, we're talking with former UNC Tar Heel player, coach, and now big-time fan, John Bunny. Great to be with you, fellas. Coach, we're, we're glad that you're here. Uh, coming from beautiful, I'm assuming you're in Portland, Maine, is that correct? We're outside of Portland about 45 minutes. Uh, I'm on a lake behind me here. It's about eight miles wide, eight miles around, I should say, and they call it a pond. But uh, <laughs> this has been in our family <clears throat> for over 30 years, and uh, we love coming up here. Of course, I'm in Naples, Florida, full-time these days trying to escape the cold uh 13 years on the philadelphia astro turf uh, i've got a few bumps and bruises so i love the warmth in the winter time down in florida but i love to escape to the north in the summertime well that's a great way to get us started how does a how does a kid from uh portland maine by way of silver spring maryland end up playing football in chapel hill tell us that story that's a pretty incredible story. My dad, who passed two years ago at 100 years old, uh, was in the Army, got in the Signal Corps. When he returned from uh, Germany, he uh, took a job with uh, NSA, National Security Agency, became uh, an analyst over there. He, uh, in the summer times, he would go to Middlebury College in, in Vermont, to study Russian. So he was a big time analyst and uh, we would get dropped off. I was born in Portland, Maine, but my dad and mom grew up in that, that Washington DC area. And he went to work for a fort at, at Fort Meade, Maryland, which is Laurel. And he'd come up here in the summertime to study Russian. And I'd get dropped off at these two cabins up here on this beautiful lake behind me that my uncle uh, and my grandfather built. So we'd spend a few weeks up here in the, in the summertime when I was a young kid, but eventually we stopped coming because football, baseball, all the sports that all of my brothers were involved in. My older brother, five years my senior, my younger brother, five years uh, my junior. I think my dad planned that. So there was always somebody around to mow the lawn, you know? So, uh, we had a great family in a very competitive family. Younger brother uh, played basketball at Randolph-Macon, uh, played in the national championship game as a starting point guard. Older brother was a, was a very competitive athlete in both football uh, and wrestling. So we are around sports all the time. I was very, very fortunate to have that situation in, in my home because that got me around other athletes uh, and back in the day, athletes were super clean and, you know, it was fun to compete. I, I learned to love football the most, even though I didn't play it until I was a, a junior in high school at the varsity level. Uh, but uh, sure enough, uh, played well, 
well enough to get recruited by Maryland and George Tech and Michigan State and all this. But my trip to Chapel Hill convinced me that was the place for me. Uh, Bill Dooley came to my high school. Uh, he was a man of very few words, but he had those steely blue eyes that would just pierce <laughs> through yours. Uh, really great coach. Really taught me a lot about how if I wanted to compete at the highest level, I had to work harder and I had to get a lot tougher. Bill Dooley was a tough football coach. So how does a guy that's as tough and to your point, as kind of piercing with with not only his looks, but the way he delivered himself. How do you get that close to him? Because I know you held him in such high regard, and I think you guys, you know, as, as you got older, became closer. But tell us about how you came to not only look up to Coach Dooley as much as you did, but just how you were able to, to form a relationship with a, with a guy like that. I would say that primarily that my four years there at, at Carolina, uh, my relationship with Coach Dooley was basically, it was fear. <laughs> it was fear. Uh, I'll just give you one example. When we did pre-spring practice, we had two sessions uh, a day for four or five days a week for, I'd say, three weeks or so. Whatever time that you were scheduled to go out there, if you were the you if you were the second group, which I primarily was, we would go and stand on top of the benches to look out the little windows to see what they were doing to the first group of players. <laughs> what, in my opinion, the goal was to get the players to throw up, get somebody to throw up. That that then they 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 made our assistant coaches were tough hombres too. So pre-spring was all about conditioning and, and taking it to another level in your conditioning. And the spring ball was no games, but it was football. I love playing in the games. I love competing in the games. And, and uh, Coach Dooley, with his assistant coaches, took a program that was down and each year got a little bit better and better. And I was very proud to be, to be part of that. Coach, uh, it's sort of, you know, it's not totally the same. It's sort of similar to what's going on now, but we'll get to that a little bit later in the show. But let's talk about playing in the games back then. I mean, as a guy who's been in it forever um, and done so much on every level, um, what was it like to play football in the late 60s and 70s at Carolina from a player standpoint with – hard-ass coaches like Dooley and he wasn't the only one. I mean, just speak to that aspect of it. I think folks, um, I think football may be more, and correct me if I'm wrong, is a little more glamorized maybe than it was back then, uh, to put it simply. What was it like to be a player in those days? Because I don't think people realize how, when you talk about tough, those days you had to be or you didn't last. Well, I'll, I'll say once again, with uh, Coach Dooley, he wanted to re recruit talented players. He was out of the Southeast Conference. He wanted to have tough players. He wanted to have fast players. But more than that, you had to prove how tough you were. He was going to put you through the grinder. And some players could not take it. I came in with 40 scholarship players, 40 guys on scholarship back then. You could have as many as 120. I think it's now... 80, something like that. But you, so we had 40 guys on scholarship. By the time my senior year rolled around, we had 12, 12 guys that remained in the program. So you, there was a toughness element of what you had to do to prove to your coaches and to yourself if you could do it. So that was a big part of it. But to play the games in Keenan Stadium uh, as a sophomore, that's Started as a soft freshman, we're not eligible back in the day, but to play in Keenan Stadium and have a, a crowd there, a big crowd, a crowd that, that that got on its feet, it was very very special, and and I enjoyed every second of it. We all knew that we played in the shadow of the basketball program, and believe me, Dean Smith 
and the way that the Tar Heels performed had an enormous impact on my desire to go to Chapel Hill as well. And I just loved the way they played, the teamwork that they displayed, that raising a hand after a basket to acknowledge a guy that made a great pass, all those things contributed to my decision to go to Carolina. And even though we, we had, we dined in the same breakfast, lunch, and dinner hall, we saw them on occasion, the basketball player in our same, they were in our dorm, separate, separate place, but they were great guys. And we want all wanted to be winners together. So it was a tremendous as, as things continued in my career as a sophomore and junior, everything got better and better and better. And we go to a, a bowl game, uh, my junior year playing the peach bowl, uh, and then my senior year, of course, we play in the Gator Bowl. We win the ACC championship for the first time in a, in a long, long time and, and go to the Gator Bowl. What was that ACC championship season like? Because it's, it's, it was a year I was born. I don't want to date you or <laughs> myself, but uh, I was born in 71. And my parents, uh, late parents, talked about it. My uh, older brothers did as well. Tell, tell us about that 71 season. And what that meant for you as a guy that had come down, um, that had been on teams that were okay, and now you're, you're ACC champions, and you're pretty much the leader of that team or one of the leaders of that team. What, what is it from your personal perspective about that year? Well, I would say that, you know, myself and Paul Miller were captains that year. And uh, Paul, I had a great deal of respect and admiration for, still and very, very close to him and a number of my other teammates, but we knew we, we were good. Uh, we, we, our quarterback situation was good. We had lost Don McCauley, you know, number one draft pick of the Colts, you know, ACC player of the year, but we had two or three other running backs that, that could play, that could play. Um, we had a very bad situation to begin the season. Uh, the practice to begin preparation for our opening game against at Richmond, uh, we had a player drop on the on the practice field, um, and uh, me and a couple other teammates helped carry him off the field. We had so many players that had gone to the hospital to get IVs uh, shot in their arms because of, of the loss, uh, the dehydration. It was so freaking hot. It was so humid. When the rain came at the end of practice, it was hot. It was warm. I'll never forget it, and it impacted the way that I coached uh, afterwards, particularly in my two head coaching roles. But that player, Bill Arnold, died about 17 days later. When he was admitted to the hospital, he had like 107, 108 temperature. Um, they called it heat stroke rather than heat uh, dehydration. Uh, uh, so we, as a, as a, the team had to make a decision because there are people that were looking to dismantle our football program because they wanted to blame it all on our staff and our methods of training. Uh, there was no water on the field that day. From that day forward, there was always water on the field. Uh, and I, as a head coach, both the Glassboro State, now Rowan University, also at North Carolina, I wanted to make sure our players were always taken care of with hydration, water, this, that, and the other. I mean, there's no reason to go old school and take the water off the field because you think it's the right thing to do because that's what you did 100 years ago. So that was a tough way for us to start. But we found our niche, I'm going to say, in our second game. We beat Richmond pretty handily. We went up to Illinois playing a Big Ten team. And we beat them, I think, 27 to nothing. We came out of that game with a ton of, conf of confidence. And we went on to win a number of games. We had a couple of tough losses. One was to Tulane. Uh, and me and the inside linebackers still kid each other about who was supposed to cover the, the back that scored the, the, the winning touchdown. And then we went to Notre Dame, where fortunate for me, I made like 19 tackles in that game. We lost 16 to nothing. 
but a Eagles scout was in the stands and saw that I could, I could tackle people. So that was a big game for me. We ended up being nine and two. Of course, we didn't lose one ACC contest. Uh, and uh, we went on to play Georgia, uh, Bill Dooley's brother, Vince Dooley, in the Gator Bowl, which I, we lost seven to three. They say it was the most boring game in Gator Bowl <laughs> history. That's a rock you fight, coach. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned Arnold uh, there, and and I was going to let you bring it up if if you wanted to. Didn't want to to put it in here um, unless you wanted to go there. But seeing that as a player, I, I mean, you mentioned the aspect of it as as a coach down the road, and and back then you had the Junction Boys, all that kind of stuff going on back in those days. As a player, what does that do to your mental health? to have that happen um, in a situation like that. I mean, everybody's like, it happens. You still got to play a season and all that. But, I mean, speak to that aspect of it. Because I, I, it's got to be pretty devastating. It was. And uh, I would say that a lot of players were not very happy with the fact that there was there were other players taken off the field that day that had to have IVs put into their arm to, to rehydrate. Because it was so freaking hot, uh, no water on the field. That's that's the wrong thing to do. And we we practiced long, we practiced hard, we we always did. Uh, that was that was our nature, and we all understood that. So this was a this was a breaking point. And once again, a couple of players that had graduated came back on campus, and Sports Illustrated was writing articles about this uh we had a decision to make and paul miller myself had a, a couple different meetings with the players um the coaches were not involved uh, you know i never had a, a conversation with coach dooley uh, about bill arnold or what took place they were fighting their own battles over there they never addressed the team except it, it, at one point to say that we were all, of course, upset about what happened, and the doctors came in and spoke with us. So we got some reassurances, but there was no doubt in me and Paul Miller's mind that we did not want the season to end. We wanted to play. I mean, we've worked ourselves for the last three years to get to this point. Let's go play. So that's, that's how that worked out. That's a that's a crazy situation for you think about it now for you know twenty one year old kids to have to be adults in that situation and I think you see that a lot um, throughout college sports where just the nature of, of that the the twenty one year olds are expected to make some very adult type decisions no uh, doubt some, do you feel like you do you feel like you grasp that more the older you get kind of the magnitude of, of what you and, and Paul Miller had to had to kind of navigate through at that point but, well there's no doubt. Uh, and, and I have the utmost of respect for Paul uh, for a number of reasons, but that, that one in particular, for us to be able to hold the team together, to get us to go back out to practice, to get us to get back into the meetings, uh, it was because it was, it, it was very hurtful. It was very trying on, once again, as you say, a 20, 21-year-old, some of these guys are 18, 19, what is going on? Yeah. What is the truth so we, we had to believe the Ducks. I think that was the convincing factor to want to continue and uh, shut, not shut this, this thing down. We, we, we're going to go forward. So you alluded to it just a little bit ago, and I kind of want to, uh, I want to move us through kind of the this is your life of John Bunning. Next phase, you mentioned the Eagles had a scout watching that game against Tulane. You went on and had an incredibly successful career in Philadelphia. Um you know, despite playing on, despite playing on that that ratty turf in in uh, in Philly, but um, played for the great Dick Vermeil, played in Super Bowl fifteen. Um, I, kind of what I'd love to hear from you is what was different from playing in the NFL from, and you can pick any you know any from a litany of things. But what was different for you in playing the game and being so successful at it? 
Then when you transitioned over as a position coach with the Rams, winning a Super Bowl there, uh, and, and then you know later as, with the Saints, what was different between being a player in the league and being a coach in the league? Because you kind of did both in a relatively close window of time. You know, 10, 15, 20 years is not that much. It's not like you came back 40 years later, right? So tell us a little bit about your perspectives, player v. coach in, in, in the pros. Well, number one, growing up in the Washington, D.C. area, I was a big Redskins fan. Mm -hmm. Now the Washington football team, okay? Uh, I love the Skins, uh, but they were horrible. They stunk. <laughs> and when you when you go to North Carolina in that time frame, the only games that are ever on are the Washington Redskins. So, you know, a lot of North Carolina people grew up Redskins fans as well. So we, we got to see them, and they were terrible. I get drafted by the Eagles. George Allen becomes the Redskins coach, and they become really, really good. Uh, and the Eagles teams that I was part of for the first four years were terrible, just terrible. And um, we had two head coaches during that time, Eddie Kayat and then Mike McCormick. We thought McCormick was going to get it turned around, but he couldn't. It, it has a lot to do with team camaraderie that locker room the thing that i probably missed the most about being a player is the locker room it was such a great place to be so many things going on so many guys making contributions either telling a joke or smacking each other with a towel and, you know having a fight you know you never know it just it just you know we had a guy named louis giamona who was my roommate the last three years of my career who just happens to be Dick Vermeil's nephew, five foot nine, 175 pounds, special teams captain, came in every morning and loved to punch players in the shoulder or the back or the gut. And all the players, all these big six foot six, six, six foot five, you know, guys are saying, Louie, leave me alone. Please leave me alone. Not today. He was the craziest man I've ever known in my life. He was a special teams captain. We don't go to the Super Bowl without his style and leadership. Just crazy. Splitting double teams on kickoffs. Great punt returner, kickoff returner, blah, blah, blah. He was special. We had a bunch of great guys in the locker room. The thing that I missed the most about playing. Now, I become a student of the game. At first, it was hard for me because playing against the Dallas Cowboys and the numerous formations and the, the, the Tom Landry fake, you know, he'd go from the, the standing position or that he would fake and put his, the, the offensive line will put their hands on the ground. Uh, it was so different from what I was accustomed to. Our defense at North Carolina was designed to stop option play. And that was primarily what we faced week in, week out, not all the time, but that was a big part of it. And, now we're, we're, I'm faced with multiple personnel groupings and formation changes and motions and what's strong, what's not strong. I was just totally confused. Took me a while, uh, but when Marion Campbell became our defensive coordinator with the Eagles in 1977, which was Dick Vermeil's second year, uh, we went to a 3-4 defense, uh, something that I, I was very good at, at – taking the tight end out of the game. I like doing it too, smashing tight ends, not letting them get blocked down on the inside backer, not letting them release free into a pass route. That was what I was really, really good about. And I understood exactly what to do in terms of calling defense from an outside linebacker position. So I learned to really study the game, study the opponent, know what their tendencies are. And, and I, I will still to this day, I'll tell you when the ball is snapped, I know what's happening at the moment it snapped. I know what's, what's going to happen. So I was able to become a good player, not a great player, a good player, but a heady player. And they relied that, that, that defense relied upon my leadership on the field. I never, I never blew a call. Nobody ever, ever, in a, in, a, in a Monday meeting or a Tuesday meeting said, hey, I didn't hear the call. That, that's BS. No, no, that didn't happen. So it never got, that never happened with me. So when, it, when I finished 
playing uh, with the Eagles, we had the 82 strike. Yours truly was the player representative of the Philadelphia Eagles. We were out 57 days and coach Vermeil thought it would be good for me to be uh, a, a captain that day, that first game back after 57 days out. And they thought it would be a great idea to introduce the defense on the field. So when my name was called and I ran out in that field, 70,000 people got on their feet and booed my family. <laughs> they were unhappy. I took football away from them. And that's, that's a rough crowd. So anyway, I, I get let go three weeks after the season's over. Coach Ramil has resigned. The strike took a lot, a lot out of him. Marion Campbell, the guy that I love and admired, is now the new head coach. Three weeks after that, that season ended, the headlines in the Philadelphia Inquirer are Bunting, Giamona, axed. Cut. <laughs> Gone. Man. So, uh, Louis, I actually, once again, he was my roommate for the last three years of my career with the Eagles and, and also was living in a place that I was in, in a log cabin out, out in Medford Lakes, New Jersey. Uh, he got picked up by the Washington Federals. I got picked up by the Philadelphia Stars. Carl Peterson, who later became the president of Kansas City Chiefs, was the uh, president and director of personnel for the Philadelphia Stars. He knew me. He knew what I did for our defense. Uh, all these kids that were playing for Philadelphia, 22, 23, 24 years old, Kelvin Bryant, uh, her name, a, a, a great Tar Heel. He's on the team. Um, I, I sign on with these guys, and I have a blast playing uh, for the next two seasons with the Philadelphia Stars. And we go to the championship game my first year. We lose out in Denver. Uh, to the Michigan Panthers. Uh, the next year we play uh, so well. We're, we we finished 19 and two. Uh, we lost two games to the uh, New Jersey Generals, Herschel Walker. Mm, and good, uh, good player. <laughs> but we beat him in the playoffs uh, to advance. And we end up playing in Tampa against George Allen's uh, Arizona Wranglers. And on July 15th, my 34th birthday, July 15th, 1984, uh, we beat the Arizona Wranglers, just smashed them, just killed them. And uh, I ended up drinking some champagne in the, in the locker room knowing I've played my last game. So that's, that's, a... that's how that, that career ran. Uh, in, interestingly enough, <laughs> We go home, have a parade in Philadelphia, which was a blast. We had a good time that night. The next day, we pack up and fly over to England. We're going to play the Tampa Bay Bandits and Steve Spurrier's team in an exhibition game. <laughs> so I just I just held my helmet. I was done. I was spent. That is a, that's a heck of a run there. Give me one, give me one or two highlights your favorite memories from your playing career doesn't have to be a championship. Doesn't have to be anything we may need. Uh, as a guy that played for so long on different levels and USFL and all that and champion, give me two, one or two memories that stick out to you personally. Well, there is no doubt uh, playing in the NFC championship game against our biggest rival Dallas Cowboys. Uh, in Philadelphia, minus 11 degrees. Uh, we had so much confidence going into that game. It was so much fun. No, normally in a locker room, there's a lot of nervous energy and a lot of guys will act out on that. And uh, my thing was, I never wanted to get dressed real fast. I, I, I wanted to take my time. I wanted to walk around and just try to get loose, try to stay loose try to get ready for the game. But that game, our players were so jacked to play against the Cowboys. And, and uh, yours truly on the second play of the game recognized the double screen that Dallas uh, used all the time and tackled a guy for like an eight-yard loss. And 70,000 people got on their feet and were jacked up. And on the second play on offense, Wilbur Montgomery takes 
uh, a play, a, a, a run, cuts it back and runs 65 yards for a touchdown. So we got things going quickly, really did. And they never were in the game. We, we ended up beating them 20 to seven. It could have been 50 to seven. Um, and it was, it was just one of the highlights of, of my entire career. I would say the other highlight would probably be that, that last game that I played in. I uh, knew it was likely to be a last, a last game. Uh, that's 34 years old. Uh, you know, guys don't play that long. And, uh, and we just thrashed. Uh, the, the, and, and we had an offense, once again, with a Kelvin Bryant, who was, I think, the MVP of the league that year, uh, rightfully so. Tremendous human being, by the way, uh, in a tough cookie. Um, Chuck Ficino was our quarterback. We had, we had some receivers that were, were, were decent, but uh, it was playing for Jim Mora was a lot like playing with, uh, for Dick Vermeil. Uh, hard-nosed, very, very committed uh, and disciplined coach. Uh, the, we won so much, I guess it was just fun. It really was a lot of fun. And for me, as a 33-year-old and then a 34-year-old playing with these young kids, and they're whining about practice, that and the other, and I wanted to say, hey, go, go through a Dick Vermeil training camp sometime, okay? <laughs> so you talk about things being fun and things being uh, things being constant in the league and, and kind of things that brought you joy. Well, we want to take a second and talk about Johnny T-shirt because they bring us joy. Johnny T-shirt right there on East Franklin Street in Chapel Hill. They've been around forever. Uh, they were here when Coach Bunning was was coaching in Chapel Hill. Uh, they've been outfitting fans for a long, long time. And they're supporters of this podcast and of Inside Carolina. So we want you guys to check them out. All of our listeners, Inside Carolina Premium subscribers, know they get the extra 10% off the top. Uh, go hit johnnytshirt.com. Visit them when you're in town for a game day. You will leave enshrouded with the most beautiful gear that you can possibly get your hands on. You'll be the best-looking person at your next tailgate, watch party, whatever you want to call it. But we're big fans of Johnny T-Shirt. Take a quick break real quick. We're talking with longtime Tar Heel coach player you name it he's done everything but i think wear the ramsey suit john bunning we'll be right back in one second passion drive and patience what brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive ebay motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers roof racks exhaust kits led headlights and more whether you're into speed power or style ebay motors has got you covered with over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, and we're back. Uh, 40 Club, InsideCarolina.com. Tommy Ashley's over there. I'm Joey Powell. Talking with Tar Heel mainstay John Bunning. I, it, it blows my mind that you're 71 years old now, Coach, and you've done a, a really fabulous job kind of regaling us with, with some of your tales from being on the gridiron. I'd like now to kind of transition a little bit to your time on the sidelines and wearing the whistle and holding the clipboard and, and directing programs and coaching young men. What was it like to make the transition from being an assistant in the NFL and, again, winning a Super Bowl uh, you know, as co-defensive coordinator of the Rams, um, being on the sidelines in the NFL, and then transitioning to while you'd been the head coach at Glassboro, now walking into Chapel Hill as the head man of the program? What was that transition like for you? Well, first of all, let me say, I, I, I never really thought that I would be a coach uh, because I got an opportunity – my first year out after retirement to coach with the Philadelphia stars and coach the guy that took my place, George Jamison and coach Mike Johnson, who was a problematic player. Uh, and I think the defensive coordinator really didn't care for him, but I got to coach Mike Johnson out of Virginia tech who later became a pro bowler for the Cleveland Browns. Uh, and <laughs> And who could ever forget Sam Mills? I mean, yeah. that guy was a stud. Been cut from Canada, been cut uh, from the, the Cleveland Browns, uh, and 
they they tried to cut him every day with the Philadelphia Stars, but he was just too good. Jim Moore said, hey, best linebacker I ever coached. So I got to coach him as well. That was really a lot of fun. And I once again, I didn't really want to coach. I'd had a bunch of coaches that I really did not appreciate. And uh, a lot of coaches in the business today, especially, they're on the move. They're always looking for the next job. And I discovered that uh, when I became the head coach in North Carolina. When I coached at Glassboro State, now Rowan University, my coaches made $1,500. They're all teachers that coached part-time. Uh, I had players that were not on scholarship. So I had players and coaches that wanted to, to be there. They just wanted to be part of the, the deal. And we took a losing program and made it into a championship program. Uh, and my last year, we went to the semifinals. We lost in the semifinals to the eventual Division Three champion, Washington Jefferson, outside of Pittsburgh. Uh, but I had to go to a, a banquet the next night and tell, and tell my players and my staff uh, that I was going to Kansas City to be with the Chiefs. Carl Peterson uh, uh, and Marty Schottenheimer both had asked me to come out and be part of the Chiefs. And it was a great move for me and my wife. My wife was the head basketball coach and head softball coach at Glassboro. Uh, and so she had to pack up and leave too. She had to tell her players. So it was a very emotional scene uh, with those people uh, as we departed. But it was an unbelievable opportunity uh, to go out there and, and, and coach in the NFL. And I got to coach Derek Thomas, you know, Hall of Famer, uh, and a bunch of other great players. Uh, we won a bunch of football games. Marty Schottenheimer had a tremendous impact on my coaching style. Uh, he was a tough, tough guy too. Uh, hard on coaches, uh, kind of easy on the players, but tough on the coaches. And uh, we had, we won a bunch of ball games. Joe Montana was our quarterback. Um, it was spectacular to, to see. I ran the scout team against Joe Montana every day, and it was just a pleasure to just watch this guy compete and the, the, the brilliance that he handled a huddle if he made a bad play he'd say screw it and and get mad and you know throw something on the ground back in the huddle let's go uh so it's a lot of fun coaching with marty four years and then dick Vermeil takes the head job at the rams uh and <clears throat> asks me to come over and coach the linebackers and i'm going to have an opportunity to coach with Bud Carson, one of the greatest defensive coordinators ever coached in the NFL, who was an old, crusty guy. He, he couldn't stand me. I, I can't even tell you what my nickname was, but it was something like F and JB. And, uh, <laughs> but he loved my wife, so I, so I got to get inside his, his good-natured heart on occasion. God bless his soul. Um, and, of course, then we won the Super Bowl. Dick Vermeule retired again. And I keep telling Dick, every time he retires, I get fired. Uh, Mike <laughs> Martz took over as the head coach. I sat shoulder to shoulder with Mike Martz up in that press box for, for a year. Uh, and I was co-defensive coordinator. He came into my office after he took the job. I congratulated him. Um, Monday, we had the parade. Tuesday, Dick Vermeule resigned. Wednesday, Mike Martz was uh, announced as the head coach. Thursday, he came into my office and said, I don't believe in uh, co-coordinators. If I want to kick somebody in the ass, I want to go to one office, not two offices. <laughs> so I said, coach, it's not broken. Don't fix it. Fired me the next day. <laughs> so five days after we oh. won the Super Bowl, we were number one in the NFL and run defense, which I was in charge of. Uh, and I got fired. So, you know, you never know what's going to happen in the coaching world. You just don't. So I, I was, I was unemployed for about three hours before I took a job with the saints coach for Jim Hazlitt, coaching linebackers, be the signal caller down there. And then lo and behold, uh, Dick Bedorf lies down in new Orleans. Uh, we have a, a, a really good meeting and I, I fly up to Chapel Hill. Uh, and, uh, I asked uh, Rick Steinbacher, as you all know, is one of the finest people I've ever known in my life. Uh, was my director of football operations as he was taking me to the airport the next day. I said, so what do you think? What do you think my chances are? He goes, 
Well, I think they're really good. Coach, uh, Dick Bedore really liked you. And uh, we only have one other guy to interview. I said, what's his name? He goes, Marty Schottenheimer. <laughs> <laughs> one big family, man. How about that? It just, there's so many coincidences in the world. So, uh, you know, me and my wife were just thrilled to get the job. My, my, I called my dad and my mom. They were both in tears on the phone because, you know, they never missed a game. They always drove down from the D.C. area to go to every home game and a lot of the away games and all the, the, uh, uh, all the, the bowl games. So uh, it was a thrill to get the position. Uh, it was a lot of work to be done. Um, I remember t telling uh, Rick and Dick Bedore that I'm looking forward to take my wife out to dinner after they announced we got the job. And, and uh, uh, he goes, no, you got to get in the room there and start recruiting. So <laughs> we, they put her on a plane and flew her back to New Orleans. And I stayed for about a week to get things going uh, recruiting wise, because that's what it's all about. And that's why, uh, you know, I'm so thrilled that Mac Brown is back because he can get he can get the recruiting back. So this is uh well go well let me jump in Joey. So this is I wanted to ask you it's just fascinating to listen. I get lost listening to you tell the stories and all the names um that we all know and remember. But let me ask the question that I was thinking about um as you were talking about the program especially. Uh, when did you realize when you obviously at Glassboro State and then, but you had been in the pros for a better part of a decade. When did you realize that, wait a, wait a minute, I know how to coach. I, I know how to get it across to players. But when did you realize that college kids are a lot different than professional kids? When did that, when did that kick in when you were at Carolina? Or did it? Or are they? Uh, what, what are the differences there? Well, once again, my experience at Glassboro State Rowan, now Rowan University, was so good and the players played so hard. And I had very, very few rules, uh, you know, basically treat others with respect. <clears throat> I wanted the, my players to have that and I wanted them to play that way. I wanted them to display uh, their happiness or their sadness in the same way, either during the game, after the game or whatever respect that when I got to Carolina, I had a incredible defense, you know, led by Julius Peppers, Ryan Sims, David Thornton, nine out of the guys that started for us were on NFL rosters to start the uh, next season because they all graduated. Mm -hmm. All those guys graduated and I had a bunch of players that were, qualified to be uh, scholarship players someplace, maybe not Carolina, but recruiting had fallen off because of when you're losing, it's hard to recruit. So Torbish had some issues recruiting. I had a great defense that Mac Brown and Torbish left for us. I had a quarterback named Darian Durant that I had with, uh, with Gary Tranquil's consultation we had gone to the two-headed quarterback that first year uh, because Ronald was having a tough time, um, and it worked out perfectly for Ronald, Darian, the two-headed quarterback. We played extremely well. But the answer to that question about players at North Carolina, players on scholarship at a Division One school versus players that are playing at a D3 school not on scholarship, different attitudes different personalities a little bit more selfish a little bit more i'm really good on game day i'm not a great practice player <laughs> i had to deal with that issue with the players i had to deal with that issue with the parents uh you know as much as as, as my fine secretary did uh, a great job uh protecting me from Parents coming into the office, parents calling me on the phone, they eventually could get a hold of me. And I also had a huge issue with discipline. You're not gonna be you're not gonna be late to class, you're not gonna be late to meetings. You have you have plenty of time. And 
And when players would be disrespectful about being on time or going to class or getting on, getting to meetings, um, I, I had a hard time with that, particularly because they're on scholarship. Yeah. Shouldn't be doing this. This is your responsibility. So that was an issue. I was very hard on the players. And we go from having a great defense to a, the worst defense in the ACC in one year's time. Um, were we different coaches? Not really. We were the same coaches. Uh, but we, we couldn't win. We couldn't win for two years. Finally, we got some players that were a little bit better athletically. But I think uh, the program and where I wanted to take it and what I, what I was demanding of the players got recognized and we became a much more disciplined team. So the 2 3 very, very difficult years yeah. for me, for our coaching staff, and for our players. 4 we go to a bowl game. Uh, we're winning. We, we get crushed by Louisville. We get crushed by Utah. But we beat, knocked off Miami. Connor Barth knocks it through with three seconds on the clock, 42 to, I mean, yeah, 42 to 38 or whatever the score was. Um, those are those are the most impactful wins that I've ever been part of, uh, as a player or a coach. Incredible to, to be to beat Florida State my first year, and to beat Miami, seven and zero, number four in the country. Incredible, just incredible. And the so, player, once again, I would say the. What I wanted to do was to change the environment and change the culture mm -hmm. of the players, and it got done over the 04, 05 years. So that doesn't happen without you guys recruiting the type of players that you want in the program, and I think that's something that you had a chance to do in Chapel Hill that you probably didn't get as much of at Glassboro. So what I'd love for you to do is tell us your favorite recruiting story from your time in Chapel Hill when you were going into homes and meeting players and meeting families and, and going to these different places and different small towns and big cities and, and trying to get a kid to follow the same path that you did and, and come play in Chapel Hill. Incredible. I mean, and uh, it's it's day and night. It's 24-7. Recruiting is 24-7. It never stops. Uh, and once again, that's so different from coaching at the, the D3 level. So absolutely, totally different. Uh, you know, recruiting at, at the in, at the Division One level, going into homes, you know, going to a home in Pittsburgh uh, in in the in the spring. Uh, there's no door on the front door. There's just a blanket. I said to the player, I said, what do you think is going to happen when, when winter comes around? He goes, we hope we have enough money to buy a door yeah. before the winter starts. Uh, having Tommy Knotts, who's a total dookie, uh, and, and I've been told he'll never deliver a player uh, to Carolina. He, he can't stand Carolina. He's a dookie. Uh, he's going to put, send any, all these great players. He calls me and says, I've got a player here that I think you want to have. Um, and he's ready to commit. If you're ready to commit, commit, commit to him. I said, who is this? He goes, Hakeem Nix. Oh, sounds good <laughs> to me. So, you know, we had recruiting weekends. Uh, I enjoyed every bit of it. Uh, when recruiting was over first Wednesday in February, I wanted to take a couple, three days off, go to the beach, whatever. Uh, it was it was really, really good for me and my wife uh, to be part of that. And we found uh, a property down there uh, just north of Wilmington that we eventually bought uh, because of what we experienced in the wintertime. Now, to skip ahead, I lived 10 years in that house after we left Carolina. And I said, you know what? I'm way too cold on the coast of <laughs> North Carolina in the wintertime. But I've learned what's going to be good for us. I did some radio TV afterwards, okay, after Carolina. Uh, and then I got asked by Tom Condon, number one agent in the, in the, in the world, as far as football, at least he was. He has, I got, I got a linebacker I'd like you to train 
uh, at IMG Academy in Bradenton, Florida. Mm -hmm. So I go down there for two months and train Luke Keekley. All right. Pretty good player. Pretty good player. Right? <laughs> Pretty good player. And I've learned that January and February in, in Bradenton, Florida is 75, 80 degrees. Wow. We got to check out the West <laughs> Coast of Florida. The next year I had Manti Teo uh, in, in IMG. Uh, you know, the guy that I was, had recruited and, and probably we could have had Russell Wilson's down there at IMG. All these great players, all great guys, you know, a lot of agents, few coaches, but I really enjoyed doing that and I enjoyed the weather. So eventually that led us to Naples, Florida, where we now enjoy our winter home. So you didn't know this was coming. A um, little bit of a surprise for you, but we talked about, uh, you know, you're talking about happiness and things that you really enjoyed. Uh, the guy I'm going to bring in here in a second is somebody that inside Carolina subscribers and fans will recognize, but um, he, uh, he wanted to come in today and say hello to you uh, all the way from uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, a guy you might recognize, Mike Ingersoll. I'll let you two guys reunite and catch up. <laughs> Hold on. What, 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 what is this? You're not, you're not Joe Rogan. I, I, my, hold on a second. Where's my manager? You told me I was going on Rogan so I could talk about ivermectin and the aliens. What, and then you give me this guy. What is this? Look, I'm, I'm just here to, I'm just here to reunite uh, two forces who have a history together. I'll let uh, Mike, I'll let you talk to your coach for a little bit. Listen, man, just like Al Gore can hear, can hear a whale in distress from miles and miles away. I could hear somebody asking if I love football. And I thought, I know that voice. That voice is, that voice is John Bunting, and I have to answer the call. <laughs> hey, Mike, it Coach, is great to see you, my man. Coach, it's good to see you, too. Where are you at? Are you, uh, are you up in Maine right now? Where are you? We're up, we're up here in Maine, and uh, we've been here since the uh, middle of May. And we'll be trucking back down to Florida about mid-October when it starts to get really cold and brutal up here. But yeah. – uh, you're, are you in the radio business now? Uh, I mean, I don't know if I don't know if I'm in the radio business. I don't think you could give a whole lot of legitimacy to what these guys are doing over here. But I do help what? them out every once in a while. <laughs> hey, Mike Ingersoll was a great player, great family. Enjoy them very, very much. I, I think I'm on Facebook with your dad, which is a little yeah. scary. That, that, anybody who's friends with my dad on Facebook, uh, just pay very close attention and, and, and mind your P's and Q's. He is <laughs> guy on social media. Oh, I can believe that. So what do, you have a family yet? I do. I do. We've got a, uh, we've got a 14 month old baby girl. Uh, she's actually going to get her flu shot today. Oh, um, wow. I got to go load the pack and play in the car here in a couple of minutes once we get done talking. Uh, so she can go do that. But yeah, I've got, uh, I got married back in 2018 and we've got a baby girl and I've got a dog right. and a house and the whole domestic thing, man. I'm a, I'm a, I'm an adult now. <laughs> hey, how much did you enjoy your time at, at Chapel Hill? Uh, I, I mean, I loved it. It was the experience of my lifetime. And, uh, and what I will say is that for everybody listening of, of all the schools that could have, uh, that could have put my nuts in a vice during recruiting and really made it. <laughs> made it stressful for me waiting on an offer. No one did a better job of that than John Bunning. If there was, and it was the reason was he knew that as soon as he dropped that offer, I was going to commit to Carolina because that was the school I wanted to come to. And of all the schools that recruited me, the one I kept waiting for and the one I kept holding out for was, was Carolina. I was waiting for that phone call from Coach Bunning. And, uh, and I will say that I got it at the Maryland game in 2005. We sat in your office. I still have the photo framed um, where, you gave me my, where you gave me my offer. Um, I also have the photo framed where I committed at the Carolina Inn uh, the Sunday morning of my official visit weekend. And uh, those are two of the, the best memories of my life. And I will say that, that thanks to you, uh, I had opportunities available to me that I otherwise would have never had. So, so thank you. You're very, very welcome, man. Well, you were a pleasure to coach and a pleasure to recruit. Um, and it's this, once again, making offers, it, it's always my call, right? It's always my call. And, and sometimes it was delayed. Sometimes it was immediate. Uh, and the, 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 the really hardest part about college football is getting turned down on signing day. And it happens. It yeah. happens. Guys that you thought were in the bag, 
they're going someplace else. And uh, when it goes to uh, 25 miles east of Chapel Hill, that really would rag me. It really would. <laughs> well, well, I'll tell you that uh, that 2006 recruiting class that I was a part of was special. And I'm, I feel honored that you felt uh, it was pertinent to include me in that. Um, that was That's a group of guys that I still stay in touch with. And some of them are my lifelong friends. And, and I wouldn't have that without without you giving me the opportunity to come to my dream school. So thank you. That class, that 2006 class, many of which redshirted. Mm -hmm. uh, that, I, think that I think Ryan Taylor, uh, Hakeem Nix, and then Tavares Brown for training camp specific reasons ended up not redshirting for that year. Um, but the right. other 23 of us, 24 of us or so, we all redshirted. And when the draft in 2010, 2011 happens, uh, Carolina is tied with USC and Texas for the most draft picks. That's nine correct. guys, nine guys were drafted out of that. Now, and I didn't, I didn't recruit them all, but I recruited at least eight of them. Seven. Or I will, eight. What I will tell you is, here's another stat: um, of all 17 seniors that participated in Carolina's pro day that year, going into the 2011 draft, every single one of those players ended up in at least a training camp on a training camp roster. 13 of us ended up on regular season rosters and made it, made it through training camp for that Incredible. 2011 rookie year. And most of those guys were part of that 06 class that you recruited. So, yep. so hats off to you. That was also another record, 17 from one class and uh, 13 of those making it uh, throughout the season from one class. That was, those were records also. Incredible. It really was uh, good players. And that's, that takes a long time to, to, to develop. And, you know, we had to go. We, we really did, and, and I felt really good about wh where we were going with everything. But, hey, when you don't win enough, that's what happens. Somebody gets fired. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, they made no if, – if, if the goal was to make sure they had school and have a good person and a great football mind come in and be the head coach, uh, they made the right call with you. And I, and I certainly never regretted my decision committing to you specifically and committing to that coaching staff. Sounds great. Mike, yes, sir. special to be with you, man. Really is. Yeah, man. Good to see you guys. I got to hop out. See you back in Chapel Hill sometime. Okay. I'll be back. I'll be back up for the Florida State game. If you're around, give me a call. I'll be there. Uh, Garrett Reynolds, a bunch of other guys are going to be up there. So give us a shout. Terrific. That's All right. Great. See, stuff, see you, man. Coach. Hey, Mike. Appreciate All it, right, Mike. Mike. Yeah, guys. See you. Coach Bunning, we're going to let you get out of here. But before we do, I wanted to get your take on the current um, status of the program. Obviously, two and two is not where people expected them to be, but the program itself is definitely trending upward. Um, can you share your thoughts and how much you keep up with it? I know you're a Carolina guy. That's what people forget is uh, people forget the tie that the Carolina grad binds. You know, it, it's just – it's different. Um, but just tell us about, to wrap up this show, your thoughts on where this program is, where Mac has it going, and, and what you think the future holds. Well, when I left – Chapel Hill um, after my senior year uh, I said to my then wife uh, I, I want to get back here someday I, I want to come back here and she she had spent three years with me there in Chapel Hill with our daughter and uh, she understood um, and I went through my coaching you know of course my playing career uh, always had a Tar Heel sign up in my locker uh, along with the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, but I always wanted to get back to Chapel Hill. Everybody that knew me knew that's where I wanted to get to eventually. Um, I didn't know I'd be a coach. I, maybe I'd just go back there and live, get start a business or whatever. But, you know, that was what I wanted, and I was able to achieve it. Certainly we didn't leave where I wanted to uh, be at that time. But once again, just heard Mike Ingersoll say, the recruiting was there. We had the players. Uh, we just didn't have a good season. Didn't have a good quarterback. And you have to have a good quarterback to, to win. Uh, the Tar Heels have a great quarterback. Um, for whatever reason right now, things aren't clicking. And I know that Matt Brown will get it fixed. Uh, I know I know his intensity level. Um and I'm disappointed, of course, that the defense doesn't seem to be playing as well as, as they might. Um, but when you lose the two great running backs and the two great receivers, it's going to take a little bit of time 
to get things going the right way offensively. But the defense has got to pick it up. And I, I think Mac Brown can do it, and I think he will do it. And I'm really happy that he is there. Well, Coach, we certainly are really happy that you took some time to join us. Uh, retirement looks great on you. I got to be honest, if, if I had a chance to be sitting in, uh, in beautiful Maine right now, um, you'd probably have to break my legs to keep me from going. But um, <laughs> we appreciate you taking some time and being so open with us this morning on the 40 Club. Uh, I think it's going to be great for a lot of our listeners to hear from you and see how well you're doing. Uh, appreciate you telling us so many stories. It's amazing how many – I feel like you rattled off more names than, than people I've actually ever known. So the fact that you rattled off just a <laughs> fraction of, of guys that you played with and coached with and played for, it's, uh, it's quite impressive. But we appreciate you taking some time with us. Um, best to you and the family. I hope that you enjoy uh, your transition down to Florida for a, a warmer winter. And uh, if we can ever do anything for you, don't hesitate to let us know. But I uh, hope to see you in Chapel hill sometime soon sounds good thanks guys enjoyed right. it that's john Bunny, Tar Heel, true and Hold through on. we appreciate him being here on this episode of the 40 club if you are not a subscriber please subscribe rate and review us we really appreciate it uh for tommy ashley for coach john bunning i'm joey powell we'll catch you guys sometime down the road take care Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale with Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases and shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval, no minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.